Today's scripture reading is Exodus 28 through 11. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath, Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord had made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Oh, the uncomfortable silence. Where is he? Isn't something supposed to happen about now? Okay, I get it. It's some kind of illustration. But it's going on too long. If he doesn't get up soon, I'm going to go straight to my iPhone. Good morning. <clears throat> Anyone here hate awkward pauses? Anyone hate being silent around other people? Maybe it depends on the person, right? Maybe it's someone you don't know quite so well, but you're both just silent for a few minutes. You ever, you ever go out to dinner with someone, you're getting to know them for the first time, and you're talking, and then suddenly there's an awkward pause. And it's really uncomfortable. Because for some reason, we don't like being silent with one another, and we don't like being quiet. I think technology is somewhat to blame. We are being trained by our devices to need constant stimulation. I don't know about you, but maybe you don't like being silent around other people, but you probably hate being silent by yourself. If you're alone in the house, do you need to turn on some kind of noise, maybe a podcast, maybe the TV, maybe some music? And you may not be paying attention to it, but as long as it's there as background noise, you need something there to fill this void, to fill this silence, because silence itself is a very, very bad thing. We don't like to be silent. We don't like to be alone in silence for sure. Because then we're just alone with our thoughts. We're just alone with ourselves and with God in that moment. Or maybe you have no time for silence. Because you're so busy. You're always working. You're going out into the job and you're... you're you know, you're, you get up early in the morning, you go to your job, and you just work, 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 and then you get home from the job, and you would relax, but there's just so much that needs to get done. And so you work, work, work some more, even at the house. And there's no leisure time. Now, some people, I, I grant you, fill their days with leisure time. But I know there's got to be some people in this room, some people who could raise their hand, but I'm not going to ask you to, who could say, yeah, that's me. I'm in the camp that's always on the go, that's always on the move, that's always working. When I do get home, I'm getting something else done. Or my mind is still back at the office. And that's when I get home. I did some research in preparation for this lesson and I found out a few things about our country when you compare it to other countries which are comparably just as prosperous, economically speaking, when you compare ourselves to other countries, again, with similar economic prosperity, we find out that we work longer hours, we take shorter and fewer vacations, 
We retire later and we have less retirement benefits and many people take on part-time work after they retire. And sometimes it's for economic reasons, but other times it's because they don't want to sit around doing nothing. They can't, it just doesn't compute. And I think it does stem from this idea of the American dream and this American, quote-unquote, American work ethic. I, I, I remember seeing on YouTube a video of, from Europeans who were talking about how they just found it so strange how little vacation Americans take. And it's true. When you, when you compare ourselves statistically to other, other countries, we are just workaholics. We love to work. And I mean that literally. We love to work because when you compare our rich people, the rich people in our society to other rich people in other societies, we find something very striking. And that is that our rich are working longer hours than even our poor and those in our middle class. Now, it used to be that if you're rich, you could afford not to work. If you're rich... You use your wealth to buy leisure time, to, to rest, right? But now there's this really interesting trend going on, and I'd say a disturbing trend going on in our country, where the people who, who spend the most time at the office are the people who can afford not to. It's the rich. We are developing a real workaholism or workism in our country. I'd like to quote from a, uh, an article that I read on this subject. It said this, The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason devout Christians attend church on Sunday. It's where they feel most themselves. In a recent Pew research on youth anxiety, we found that among all the ambitions that young people have, number one on their list was a job that they would enjoy. That was number one, and it beat out ambitions such as having a family. It beat out ambitions such as helping others in need, which took about 80%, and then 41% was about how many people wanted to, said they wanted to get married. But 90%, up in the, or 95%, the highest was this idea that you have to have a job that you care about, that you like. And again, it goes back to this idea that, job, that a job isn't just a job. It's not just a job, right? It's a career. It's a calling. In fact, I'd like to read from another quote from this same article. It said, A culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. In the past century, the American concept of work has shifted from jobs to careers to callings. From a necessity, right? It's a necessary thing. In some cases, a necessary evil. It's a necessity, but then it became a way, of stat, a way you could gain status. It became your status in life. And then eventually it became your purpose in life. And this is the real issue, because there's nothing wrong with work, obviously. When Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden, they were given jobs to do. There's absolutely nothing wrong with work, and there's dignity in work. In fact, someone who doesn't work, I, I would venture to say, has a meaningless life, just in the same way that someone who devotes their entire life to work also has a meaningless life. Because our desk at work can't fulfill the function of an altar. 
our job can't fulfill the role of religion. And when we put our job in that position, what we're doing is we're breaking the first of the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other gods before him. We are elevating our job and our status and our position into the place of God. And that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for disaster even for those who find great success by working and toiling in the labor force. Again, because a job will buckle under such pressure. Now, as our society has become more secular, become more atheist, a bevy of new religions have popped up. And we've discussed several of those, I know, uh, several times from the pulpit up here. Some people in our country worship beauty. Some people worship themselves in the form of, of money or their own fun or excitement. But there are other people out there who worship work. And that's just as bad, even if we think it's noble, to replace God with anything is a sin. Now, there are other people out there who I would venture to say also worship the noise. They hate silence. Again, because we're being trained, our brains, by our technology, by, by our society in general, we have to, not only we have to be constantly working, we have to be constantly on the move. And if we're not on the move, our brain has to be stimulated in such a way that we don't slow down and focus on what's going on around us or slow down and focus on ourselves, slow down and focus on God. We have to be constantly stimulated. Now, understanding the United States in this light, I would venture to say that many Americans would have viewed the Hebrew nation as lazy. In fact, I heard from a preacher, I can't remember which preacher said this, but he basically he said that the, Jew, uh, that the Jews were thought of as, as lazy by the Romans. Right? The Romans saw these Jews who would stay at home on the, every seventh day of the week. They would basically rest. They wouldn't do any work. They saw, they saw that as lazy. I think many Americans probably think the same way. Because if you do nothing, well then, you're just a worth, worthless person, right? You're worthless, you're a busybody, right? And again, there's, there's two sides to this coin. But let's focus in on the extreme for a moment. The people of God were given very specific laws where every seventh day they were to stop. They were to pause. And you know, you might think to yourself, you know, this isn't my problem. I don't think this is many people's problem because we have weekends, right? But how are you actually spending your time in the weekend? How are you actually spending your free time? Are you trying to find other things to get done? Or are you actually slowing down and pausing and resting and focusing on what really matters? With all this in mind, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going back again to the Ten Commandments. We're on commandment number four, where God tells his people that every seventh day they must take a Sabbath, a rest. And he's already prepared them for this idea in the previous journey to Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 16, we find out, starting in verse 22, that the people were gathering manna and quail as God had provided for them. But on the sixth day, on Friday, they were to not gather, or actually I should say, they were to gather a double portion. Okay, Because they were not to gather on the next day, the Sabbath. Let's go ahead and read from verse 23. It says, Then he said to them, 
This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered. And it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. You see, the way in which the quail and the manna had been given to the people, it had been given as a test, really. A test to see whether or not God's people were going to trust in God's provisions. So on all the other days of the week, God would give them this quail and this manna, and he told them, don't gather leftovers. Gather enough for just today and eat it, and and trust that the Lord's going to bring more tomorrow. But the one exception to this rule was on Friday, the day before Sabbath, Obviously, it wasn't called Friday yet. But on the day before Sabbath, they were to gather a double portion. He says, on this day, you will gather leftovers because on the next day, the Sabbath, that is a day of rest, a day not for gathering. It is a day for other things. And so he's got them prepared for this, and now he sets it in stone, quite literally, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Now, before we break it down in the text, I'd like us to focus on, just for a moment, on why this commandment is is unique from the other of the ten. The other nine commandments, it is unique from them. First of all, it's unique because it's the only commandment given with a purpose or a reason behind it. And we're going to see, as we break down the text, this purpose goes all the way back to creation. But it's the only, out of all the ten, where God says, here's what you do and, and here's why. And then we move on to the second reason it's unique is because it's the only out of all the Ten Commandments that is a ritual. Now, this is quite remarkable when you think about it. When you compare it to other ancient codes, other ancient religions, they were very ritualistic. But the Ten Commandments aren't. There's only one, and that's the Sabbath, which is why many Jews considered the Sabbath to be the most important of the rituals in in all of the Old Covenant. For yes, under the Old Covenant, under the Law of Moses, there were many rituals. But the Ten Commandments are unique in that nine of them are moral codes. In other words, they're about how you treat your neighbor, but how you treat one another, how you treat your spouse and your kids and parents and so on. Whereas only one of them is an actual ritual being decreed. And so that makes it unique. The final reason, or, or at least that we'll look at, the final reason it's unique is, was also stated three weeks ago in our sermon on the first of the Ten Commandments. And that is that it's the only one of, there's, it's, there's only two commandments that are stated positively. All the others are thou shalt not. This is a thou shall. You shall do this. Okay? And we talked a little bit last time about why that's so important. So let's go ahead and break this down now, verse by verse. In verse 8 we find... God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, in the Hebrew, it literally means to be separate, to be set apart. And so we we understand now that to mean separate and apart from the other days of the week. The Sabbath is being elevated. As As the verses will go on to say, it's a day elevated to God. And so we have the Sabbath day is this elevated day, and all the other days of the week, you could almost call them secular days of the week. And so the Sabbath is set apart, is to be kept holy. And we see why, the, uh, what we need to understand from this is that 
this isn't a day just about rest. It's a purposeful rest. It's a day of worship to God, as he goes on to say. It's a day kept apart. It's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And so we need to first, out of the gate, understand we're not just talking about rest, but a purposeful rest, a worshipful rest. Because this Sabbath day was a day of worship set aside. But we move on into these next two verses, and we read that this commandment was not only for the people of Israel, but it was also for a sojourner traveling through who is maybe staying at their house, or also for slaves working under them. And this is one of the most ethically important verses of all the Bible. And it's kind of a hidden gem, almost. Because now we see God laying the, the, the foundation for what He's going to do later on, even all the way up until the New Testament, when He's dealing with slavery. He's now setting this, these little nuggets in place, you could say, where He's making sure people understand that slaves are human beings. And He's giving them the same meaning when he says, they also get a Sabbath. They also get a day of work. Which is, by the way, not how slavery works generally, right? And, and I think that's another important note we should remember. And that this, these commandments, the Ten Commandments, all start with God saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who broke your chains. He starts the commandments off by saying that. And so I think we, sh- we, would, we would be... Uh, I think it would be a problem if we neglected this point in that only a free person can choose to take a day off work. The Israelites couldn't turn to their Egyptian slave masters and say, hey, I'm taking off. Right? They couldn't do that. But now that God has broken their chains, now that they're serving Him as their master, He's giving them this day of rest, this time off. And I think that's an important understanding. Another thing we need to notice from this is that it's not just a corporate commandment. Sorry about that. Don't look yet. Don't look. Okay. It's not just a corporate commandment. It's all, uh, and by that I mean it's not just a commandment served uh, or you know that everyone in the nation followed, but it, he's now zooming in on the family. It's a personal commandment. This is a time that you would spend with your family. And that's the way in which the Jews viewed the Sabbath. It wasn't just a day to set aside for worship, a day of rest. It was a day to spend time with one's family. It was a day to pause and slow down. In fact, many Jews today, still those who are Orthodox, still follow this, the Sabbath. And what they do is they're not even allowed, some of them at least, they're not even allowed to go online. They don't even allow themselves to go on their phones. They don't allow themselves to... Basically what they do is they unplug from the world and they just focus on God and their family. And that was how important the Sabbath was for them. And and when you read the writings of, of rabbis over the centuries, you find out just how important the Sabbath was. The Sabbath to the Jew was the culminating day of the week. Everything was leading up to the Sabbath. And everything was pointing back to the Sabbath. In fact, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but what does it mean to be the first day? It means to be the first day from Sabbath. And so on and so forth with all the days of the week. The Sabbath was the culminating moment. And here's what I mean, and here's what's so important about this. Human beings, our purpose is not just to labor. In other words, we're not given the weekend so that we can rest 
and therefore we will be more efficient on the work week. How many of you, uh, don't raise your hand, how many of you have a boss that thinks that way? The weekend is for you to rest and become more efficient so you can come back and get to work. That's not how the Jews viewed the Sabbath. It wasn't just a, a day in which you could replenish yourself so you could do what really mattered. No, everything led to the Sabbath. Let me put it this way. Human beings are not beasts of burden. We don't rest so that we can work. We work so that we can rest. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? That's the idea here of the Sabbath. Everybody, the Jew, would work on the days of the week so that they could get to the Sabbath. This time that they slowed down, this time that they unplugged from society. Yes, the other six days of the week were very hectic, but in this moment, on this day, they slowed down and they spent time with their family and they spent time with their Lord. And they focused on Him. And they recentered their lives on what really mattered. So the Sabbath was the culminating moment for the Jew. And then we get into verse 11 and we find out the purpose behind it. Have you ever looked at a seven-day week and thought, that's weird? Why do, we ha- why do we break up our weeks into seven days? Because don't the numbers just not add up when you try to, when you try to put seven days into a month, right? You break a month up into, into weeks, right? It becomes four weeks. Not every time. It's not quite exact, is it? I know when Carissa was pregnant, we were always trying to count uh, months, but it just didn't work that way. You had to count weeks because nine months isn't technically how long the pregnancy is supposed to last, right? It's like 39 to 40 weeks. So you had to count in weeks. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself crazy thinking, oh, we're this many months? No, we count in weeks because the months don't really matter because weeks and months don't really mesh. You know why that is? It's because so, much of our, so many other parts of our calendar are based on natural phenomena. They're based on the cycles of the moon. Weeks aren't based on anything like that. The seven-day week is based on the six days of creation and the seventh day when God rested. That's a supernatural event, not a natural phenomenon. And when you look at other uh, days elevated by the Jews, they were usually based around some kind of natural phenomena. And you go out into the secular or to the pagan world, that is definitely the case. Their holidays were always based around either the sun or the moon or something in nature, right? Or the seasons that were going on. But not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was every seventh day because on the seventh day God rested. And so what you see from this is that any time maybe a pagan, like a Roman, saw the Jews resting on the seventh, they had to be reminded of that creation account. The Sabbath was a sign to the rest of the world. And when a Jew followed the Sabbath, they were pointing back to their Creator. They weren't pointing to anything in nature. They weren't worshipping nature. They were worshipping the Creator who made nature. They were worshipping the Lord that was so important to them. So, all of that being said, now we come to the question, what about us? How do we apply this, the, this commandment? How do we apply these principles? Are we supposed to observe the, the Sabbath day as Christians? Are we doing that right now, this morning? Is this our Sabbath? Well, a lot of people would use that terminology But I think Scripture shows us that this is not the case, that we are not supposed to follow the Sabbath, at least in the ritualistic way. If you go ahead and look with me 
We're going to look in a moment at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. But before we do, I just want us to understand, when we look at the Christians of the Bible, the Christians of the first century, they met on the first day of the week. Right? We understand this. They met on the first day to break bread, to have communion, and to worship. They were not restricting themselves from worship on other days of the week. Far be it, right? They met every day, some, some scripture says, which can add an interesting note to the discussion. But we do know that they met on the first day of the week, and it was an important day for them. And practically speaking, it took the place of the Jewish Sabbath. So what about Jews who then became Christians? Did they then follow the Sabbath? Right, that's the question. By the way, let's go back. Let's make one more note. I already mentioned, what does first day of the week mean? Can you guys remember? What does it mean to be the first day of the week? First day past the Sabbath, right? So you can't have your cake and eat it and eat it too, right? You can't have both at the same time. When it says the Christians met on the first day of the week, that's saying they met on the first day after Sabbath. So we can't just then pluck that term out and say, oh, it was also their Sabbath. Now, again, you can, if you're speaking metaphorically, I, I get what you're saying. If you're speaking practically, I get it. But we aren't taking the same ritual Sabbath and putting it into Sunday. And, and for that... For the proof of this, let's go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What's he saying so far? He's saying, first, you need to, you, when, I know you're hearing all these things from different people, people who are spouting off different philosophies, different traditions that you're supposed to follow, and he even points back to Jewish rituals that were commanded under the Old Covenant. He talks about circumcision. He says, you don't need to be circumcised now because you've already had a circumcision of Christ when you were baptized. And so he's pointing back to all these other things. He's saying, don't be swept away in these old rituals or in these traditions of men because Christ has come and Christ is better and Christ's circumcision is sufficient and His saving grace is sufficient for you. And then verse 16 he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These rituals of old, some of these rituals, the ones which aren't repeated in the New Testament, which by the way, if you're keeping score, all of the, of the other nine commandments are repeated as commands in the New Testament, but Sabbath isn't. And so Paul is saying here, we as Christians, we don't have to strictly observe the Sabbath in the way Jews did. Now, I could end the sermon right there. 
and say, okay, it's not applicable to us. The end. You know, come as we say the same. But that's not what I'm going to do because I do believe there are principles from the Sabbath that are so applicable to us and so important to us. And I think they are principles we have neglected over the centuries. So let's briefly, I'll do my best to be brief. Let's briefly talk about them. But it all comes back to something I think we need to understand from Mark chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We see Jesus and his disciples are walking in a grain field. And what's taking place is that they're, taking, they're picking the heads of grain and they're eating them. And the Pharisees see this and they say, Yo, what are you doing? Right? You're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, well, he says in verse 25, go ahead and read there. He says, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is so important for us to understand. The Sabbath was made for man. What does that mean? It means that not only was the the, the Sabbath a commandment people had to follow in the Old Covenant, it was also a commandment that was good for them. And really that's true of all commandments. At least I would, I would make that argument that it's true of every single commandment God gives us. And I think we miss the boat on that sometimes. Here's a little side note. When we tell our kids, our young people, the do's and do nots, I think we, we really miss the boat sometimes when we don't tell them why. We say, do, do or do not because God said so. And yes, that's sufficient. That should be enough. But God didn't just stop there. God also tells us there are reasons behind it. Because God is our creator. He's our manufacturer. Right? He knows what makes us tick and He knows what's best for us. And He knows that sin devastates us psychologically and spiritually and emotionally. And so not only are we supposed to stay away from sin because it's wrong, but because it's bad for us. We, we need to tell our kids, our young people, you need to abstain from sexual relations outside of marriage because sex has consequences. And it, it has emotional ramifications. It has physical ramifications. It messes things up. It messes up relationships. It, it, it will throw a monkey wrench into any relationship, I guarantee you. And, and, and what, he's, what, what we need to be focusing on is not just the do and do not because you know, God wants to ruin your fun. No, it's do and do not because God knows what's best for you. He doesn't just tell us to stay away from drunkenness because He hates parties. He knows that when we lose our senses in drunkenness, We do all sorts of vile things and we can harm ourselves and we can harm others. The commandments given by God, they lead us to a better and more fulfilled life in a very practical sense. Now that is not to say that everything will go good for us if we follow God. But it is to say that practically speaking, if we abstain from these sins that God, these these potholes along the road, then we're not going to get in a wreck. And the same is true of the Sabbath. Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath. We've got the order all mixed up. The Sabbath was made for man. Because God knows that we can become workaholics. God knows that we can get so caught up in the world that we miss what's important. 
He knows that we can stimulate ourselves so much that we can have the noise turned up so loud that we forget to slow down and and spend time in those quiet moments. So let's look at just those principles for a moment of the Sabbath. We'll focus on two, two ways in which the Jews viewed the Sabbath. And hopefully we can then apply them to our lives. Not, again, not in a ritualistic way, but I think they could easily be applied on a Sunday or a Saturday or any, or any day of the week for that matter. Uh, but let's go ahead and think about what the Sabbath meant for the Jews. Number one, the Sabbath was a safeguard. Again, it was a time to unplug. It was a time to recenter one's life on God and on family. I was talking to my brother the other day. He's training to be an EMT. And he just learned in a class how to treat concussions. And if you've had a concussion, what you have to do is you basically have to go into a dark room. And you can't have any, anything stimulating your brain. That means no phone, no book, no visitor, nothing. No TV. You just have to sit in the dark room. And you can't go to sleep. You just have to sit in silence. And James said that when his class heard about this, they were shocked and thought that's the most terrifying thing I've ever heard of. Because we hate the silence. We hate... And isn't that kind of disturbing? How, how, how little must we think of ourselves if we hate to be alone with ourselves? I don't know about you, but I hate taking baths. Because all you do is sit there. Now, maybe you turn on the phone and you listen to something. I've tried to bring a book into the bath. It's not a good idea, okay? But we, we become so terrified of sitting in silence, sitting with our own thoughts, slowing down and unplugging. But I think there'd be great benefit. I think there'd be enormous benefit to, a no, to an unplug rule in a family or in a household. In other words, maybe on Sunday, Sunday's a good candidate, right? Come home from worship, and you have the rule. We're going to unplug. We're not going online. We're not going to get caught up in what's going on in the world around us. We're going to slow down, and we're going to just spend time together. I ask anyone who's married to a workaholic the great benefit that that would have on your family. I think just this practice alone could save marriages and men relationships. If you have one day out of the week... We just unplug. And that means unplugging from work too, by the way. I grew up with a mom who we called a workaholic. I don't know if she technically was or is. But let's just say, whenever she would mention work, outside of work, we would say, Mom, you're doing it again. Maybe you're like that. But just imagine one day out of the week where you're not allowed to think about it. Sure, an emergency might come up. But let's say one day out of the week, you have a rule, and the people at the office know, too, that on this day, you unplug and you aren't concerned with that because what you're concerned with is God and your family. Again, I think that would mend relationships. I think that could save marriages. The second thing that the Sabbath was to the Jews was that it was a sign. A sign to the rest of the world. In Exodus chapter 31, God calls it as much. He says it's a sign to, between me and my people. And he says it's for all generations to come. Forever, he says. It's a sign to the rest of the world. I think a great example of this is the restaurant Chick-fil-A. 
I love Chick-fil-A. You would not believe how many times Carissa and I have been going to the restaurant and we're going up and we're like, oh yeah, we're going to get some chicken sandwiches, right? And then we, we see, oh no, there's no line outside the door. Oh no, there's no, isn't it noon right now? You know, there's no one driving in the drive-thru. And then we get to the door and we're like, oh no, it's Sunday. Chick-fil-A, why? Why do you do this to me? But really what's happening there Sorry if I got you in the mood for Chick-fil-A because it's closed today. But, but Chick-fil-A is now actually showing a sign to the rest of the country, to the rest of the world, that what's more important than extra money, because you better believe people would go to eat after church to Chick-fil-A, but they're saying what's more important than money is a time to set aside and to unplug and to not make our workers go in. That's... I think incredible as a business. And it's a great example of how you can be assigned to your boss. Maybe you have a boss that thinks, you know, the one who's willing to come in every day, the one who's willing to come in on Sunday, they're the one that's going to get the promotion, right? Maybe you have a boss who thinks that way. And it might be tempting to say, I want to take care of my family. I need this promotion. But you know what? Let's look at the other side of the coin for a moment. Let's say the boss thinks that way and you tell them straight up, I'm sorry, Sunday, or maybe Saturday is my family day, but I'd say at least Sunday is my day of worship. It's my day for family. I'm not coming in. Yeah, you might not get the promotion. You'd be providing a sign to that boss of what's most important to you. And that's really the question. What is most important to you? Is it making extra money? Is it finding purpose in your career? Or is it God? Is it your family? We can learn a lot from the Sabbath. Because we all need rest. Rest is good for us. And it's not a means to an end. It is an end in and of itself. But not just rest, a purposeful rest. A, re- a rest that is devoted to God, where we focus on Him alongside our family. Otherwise, we're just resting for the sake of resting, right? Now, I can't bind a commandment on anyone this morning, but I hope you'll consider an idea, this idea of unplugging, this idea of rest. I think it could have extreme benefits. I know I'm going to try to do better at this. The lesson is yours. You're here this morning and you have not yet obeyed the gospel, not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We definitely want to give you the opportunity. We can come forward. We can talk with you. We can study with you. And if you're ready, we can baptize you into Christ. Or if you're here this morning and maybe you've neglected your family through work, or you've put too much emphasis in your career, whatever your need is, we also offer an opportunity where you can come. We can pray with you and for you. Whatever your need is, please come. As together we stand and sing.